Amen. All right, John 4, we're going to look at verses 1 uh, to 26. God's Word says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Remember last week we focused in on the ministry of John the Baptist. There was some jealousy and envy on John the Baptist's disciples towards Jesus and the fact that that Jesus and his followers were baptizing more people than they were. Word gets out to the Pharisees. So now they're moving on from this area and going to Galilee, verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. We'll get to the significance of that in just a few moments. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Even Jesus got tired. Isn't that amazing? It was about the sixth hour, or we can think about noonday, about midday. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, hear this, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him, hear this, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Uh Uh-oh. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, this is important, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then hear this response. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Or in other words, we could put there, I who speak to you, I am, is what Jesus is saying there, that he is God. Now this section begins Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at, at the well, very famous story that we have before us. Unfortunately, we're, we're a few weeks removed from Jesus' interaction with a religious leader. Do you guys remember that religious leader we talked about a few weeks ago? What's his name? Nicodemus. Good. There's a few down here. Nicodemus. Uh, I wish we could hold these two interactions up side by side together. 
because we should see some parallels in their conversations. And it brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. Jesus is the only well. We're thinking of like a, a well dug into the ground. The only well of renewal for both this, the marginalized and the comfortable, the marginalized and the comfortable. Why in the world would I state it as marginalized and comfortable? Because here's, here's a truth I hope you walk away with this morning. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. Thinking back again to, to Jesus's encounter with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a teacher of the Jews. He was a well-respected man, probably lived a really good moral life, was quite comfortable. Just He seemed like he was a wealthy guy. And so he's our comfortable when we speak of Jesus as the only well of renewal for both the marginalized and the comfortable. When I say comfortable, we have to remember back to Nicodemus because this story isn't just happening in a vacuum. It's in context with some other interactions that Jesus is having. He and Jesus instructed this, this comfortable religious leader, Nicodemus, and he said an interesting phrase to Nicodemus. He said, you must be what? Born again or born from above. Here now, if we fast forward to this story, story, Jesus engages with this marginalized Samaritan woman who is, as he revealed throughout this passage, she's caught up in a sinful lifestyle. She's made some poor decisions in her life. And he offers to her this. He offers her the living water, he says, of eternal life. And whenever Jesus uses that term eternal life, we want to think of life in abundance, Life in abundance, life that is truly life. We, where do we get this main idea from? Verse 14, if you look to the screens or to your notes, Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, welling up to life in abundance. I believe uh, the original readers or those hearing this gospel read aloud, this statement would have likely reminded them of, of a verse from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 1, uh, which says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is Jesus's invitation. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus is the fulfillment of that section of scripture here when he says that he is the living water. He is the one that's inviting everyone who thirst, the comfortable and the marginalized, to come and receive, in a sense, what we don't deserve, to come and receive the gift that he gives freely. He is, Jesus is the water. He's the source of life and truth. All of us need water, right? All of us need that, that nourishing liquid. Jesus here is inviting everyone to come to him. Even those in this passage here, even those who have nothing to offer, This woman has nothing of value or earthly value or significance to offer to him except she just brings her sin and brokenness to Jesus. That's all she brings. He's inviting her to come and receive his living water so that she may live in abundance of life. 
Uh, in Mark chapter 2, this, as I was reading through this passage, it reminded me of Mark chapter 2. Uh, set the, the stage there in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is calling some followers, and in that passage, he's, he's eating with tax collectors. Why is that significant? Because tax collectors in this culture and society, they were Jews who had kind of sided now with the Romans for their own gain, and they would tax the Jewish people. So they were kind of the enemies of the Jews. They were detestable. They were unclean. The, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the tax collectors. They were basically the worst of sinners because they took advantage of God's people. Here Jesus is reclining, and he's eating with these tax collectors and sinners in a sense, we could attach this label to them. They, they were the less thans. They were looked down upon. And the religious leaders called Jesus, they, they kind of gave him a title here. They called him a friend of sinners. They accused him of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. What was Jesus' response to them? We find it in Mark 2.17. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The purpose of Christ to call sinners to follow after him. In other words, see, because the reality is we know this. We all, we all have a, a sin nature, so by nature we are sinners. Jesus is saying, I, I came to call those who truly realize that they have a spiritual deficit that they are unable to pay back. We have a spiritual deficit to God the Father because we have sinned against him. We have a, a chasm. Do you know what a chasm is? It's a, a big gap, a big space. We have a chasm that we cannot cross to the Father. We need someone else to cross it for us. Jesus is saying, I am the bridge to those who truly humble themselves and receive the gift of life. He came to save sinners like you and me. In these interactions, both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman we begin to understand this, that Jesus' mission is to, is to offer himself as this, as the well of life for not only the, the comfortable, but also the marginalized, like this woman, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well. We find this truth. We all need Jesus. We all need the living water of Jesus. Our first point for this morning is this. We find in this passage that Jesus is a life-giving well. Jesus is a life-giving well. If you think about a well that you draw up water, that is Jesus. He's a life-giving well. And we're going to see uh, this woman identifying who Jesus is, begin, identifying, beginning to understand who this guy is. She keeps asking kind of questions. She's perplexed by Jesus' answers to her, her probing, much the same way as Nicodemus was perplexed when he said, you must be born again. Let's look to the text, 7 to 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John tells us, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. 
Where do you get that living water? Water. Hear this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I want to pause there for a second. Who is Jacob? Jacob is what we would call a patriarch, kind of a, a father of the Israelites. We think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as fathers. And basically what she's saying is she's saying, are you greater than him? Are you greater than them? In that, she's making a theological statement because yes, the answer is yes, Jesus is greater. Jesus' well is greater than Jacob's well. Because it's an inexhaustible well. She goes on, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Is she yet getting what Jesus is discussing here? I don't think so. She's kind of still a little bit lost like Nicodemus was when Jesus said he must be born again. Now, this morning we have to, in order for us to kind of get the full picture of what's going on here and how radical it is that Jesus is talking to this woman, we got to do a little bit of background work. We got to do a little bit of history here so we can understand who this Samaritan woman is and why it's so uh, kind of startling to her that Jesus is actually conversing with her. Jesus crosses uh, in this passage the boundary of many a, a Jewish social taboo. Okay, He's crossing some boundaries here. He, I'm going to point out three of them. He's a Jewish man speaking to a woman, okay? In this time, this is a patriarchal society. In the middle of the day, you don't go and talk to a woman who's not your wife or your mother, okay? So taboo number one. Taboo number two, he's a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan, okay? We'll get to the reasons why that's an issue in a little bit. Number three is he's revealed here he's a Jewish man speaking to a sexual sinner. Okay, there's known sexual sin in her life. How do we know that? Because there's no other reason that she would go to this well at noon when it's hot, right? Who goes out in the middle of the day and works in the hot sun? Not by choice, okay? Usually the women would go to the well early in the morning or in the evening when it was a little bit cooler to draw water. She's obviously trying to avoid some crowds and some finger pointing at her lifestyle. So she goes at noon, kind of in the heat of the day, so that she won't get any grief from the other women in the village about her lifestyle choices. Jesus in his human fatigue, we know this in context that he was resting, he was weary in his human fatigue, he's resting alone at the well, engages with this woman, begins to talk with her, who we will later find out has, it seems like a promiscuous background and history. Okay, but the major issue lies in the division of the Samaritans and Jews, again, kind of a short history lesson here. Who are these Samaritans? Some of you may like, I have no idea what this word means, who these people are. After Solomon's reign, so 900 years or so before Jesus, before this point, after Solomon's reign, so he died, Israel enters into a tumultuous time in their history, which they've never really recovered from. And they, they were a unified kingdom under, under this last king, and then they separated out into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was basically only evil all the time. The southern kingdom was kind of evil, we could say. They had kings that were good leaders at times, but most of them weren't. 
Both of them ended up in exile and being taken over by, by foreign enemies. The northern kingdom was taken over much sooner because of how evil they were. They were overtaken by the Assyrians. Most of the Israelites that lived in the northern kingdom were sent away or exiled, and we just really don't hear from them again. And the remaining Israelites they, that were in the area intermarried with the Assyrians, an a, a issue religiously for the Jews. And they also did this. They married together the practices of their religion and the pagan beliefs of the Assyrians. They kind of merged some of those beliefs together. And so the division persisted beyond just boundaries of Israel, but now to when, when they married those things together, now we have issues of worship, of the worship of God. The reality is, is that the tribes of the southern kingdom had an incredibly low view of, of the Samaritan. There was some kind of some deep racial tension going on here, some deep-seated issues culturally. They were idolaters. They had intermarried with a foreign people. They were not pure. They were unclean in the eyes of the Jews. The, the viewpoint of, of the Jews at this time would have been kind of the lowest of the low. The Samaritans even built a rival temple, a rival to the Jerusalem temple. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim. If you go back in your Old Testament, you can look up where that's at. And to increase tensions, about 130 years before Jesus came, a Jewish high priest from, from the southern kingdom destroyed that temple, the Samaritan temple. Could we say that there's, there's a lot of tension between these two groups? That's the backdrop. That's the history behind this. Needless to say, there, there was so much animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, and the, and the Jews viewed them as so impure that this area that Jesus is going through is actually kind of a direct pathway between two points that, that the Jewish pilgrims would have wanted to travel along, but they have... They were so passionate about their distaste for these people that they would take a longer path all the way around this area. So it's quite remarkable that Jesus is even traveling through this area. Moreover, so that's just kind of the, the cultural divisions that exist. Jesus will also reveal that this woman is, is a sexual sinner. We Heard that in the text a little bit earlier. And this is, this is the backdrop of the conversation before us. This is the type of person that Jesus is engaging with. It's the type of person that his culture would say, no, you have to stay away from her. You can't engage her. But Jesus goes to her and offers her what? He offers her the hope of living water. It's beautiful. It's radical. It's amazing. And we want to desperately kind of focus in on, on the Samaritan woman, but we can't lose the focus, the point of this passage. It's all about Jesus and his grace and his mercy and the free gift that he offers. And it shows the purposeful intent for Jesus to seek and save the lost. He is here on purpose. It's no accident I'll say this, each and every one of us have met Jesus. If you are a Christian, you've met Jesus on purpose. He's purposefully met you. 
It's no accident that he's resting at at this well around noon in the daylight as a woman arrives. He is present with a purpose and he offers this woman her true need. Does she physically need water? Yeah. But more importantly, she needs what Jesus offers. She needs the living water, the living water of eternal life. This too, historically, would have been an important term. What is living? It was actually a term that was used in this day and age. This isn't some just kind of made up term that Jesus had. Uh, In this time, living water was a term used of, of wells that were dug with kind of a live source feeding them, a stream or an underground river that fed them, that kept them fresh. And there was an abundance of water that fed into the well. The term living water meant the well would have been fed by a source such as an underground river or stream that kept it fresh. It would not stagnate. I know in my neighborhood, we, we have an f- old farm pond. Where we live used to be an Angus farm, and they built a bunch of houses in there. I wish I would have spread them out a little bit more. And in the back of our neighborhood, there's an old farm pond. My son Jordan will go down there and fish in the summer. And this year, usually about April, May, when it gets a little bit warmer, the fish start to wake up, right? And he goes down there. I hadn't been back there throughout winter because, you know, like it's cold. So I don't want to go down there. So he goes back and the top of the water down there had this thick green sludge all over it. The pond had grown stagnant. And he threw a line in there and didn't catch. He hasn't really caught much all season. The the fish seemingly have just kind of died off in there. He'll catch bluegill because those things will live through anything. But none of the other good stuff. Well, the bluegill are good, especially if someone fries them things up. <clears throat> Anyways, um, it, the pond doesn't have a consistent source. That It's not a living pond. It's, it's stagnant. It's starting now when we get rain now to clear up a little bit. Seems to be a little bit more life in it, but it's grown stagnant. It's like those ponds. There's like a few ponds you see out there. They look like guacamole. You know what I'm talking about? That's not a good, that's not a good look for a pond. We don't want one like that. But Jesus is connecting himself to kind of a, an illustration that would make incredible sense to this lady, this living water that feeds this stream. We get these kind of this picture of something that's inexhaustible, that's refreshing. That's what Jesus is. He's refreshing, that it gives life. Like, who wants to go into stagnant water? You know, that warms? No, thank you. Something that's running and fresh and clear. And it never stagnates because it's immeasurable. Jesus said this, or John's gospel says this in John 3, 34. It says, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Hear this, for he gives the spirit without measure. There's this idea that it's inexhaustible. The woman here is beginning to understand the identity of Jesus. She's identifying who he is in her head. She's working through. And so for us, now pull ourselves out of the story. We hold the mirror up to ourselves. What, what can we learn out of this passage? Hopefully you're encouraged if you're a Christian that you've received this living water from Jesus, this life in abundance, this inexhaustible well that you have, this immeasurable spirit that he has filled you with. And for those of us who have personally received the, the living water of Jesus, which I think is connected to his spirit, his life-giving Holy Spirit that he gives us without measure, 
We see that here in this passage. Secondly, what's beautiful too is that if, if we're followers of Jesus, we want to grow in what we call Christ's likeness. We want to become more like Jesus. In Jesus here, we see a model for sharing our faith, for engaging with the lost, for coming to those who are less than in society with the good news of the living water that Jesus offers. So we have to ask ourselves, How do we engage with those whom society has cast away and looked down upon? You see, the church should not just look like some sort of social club where we all come out and pat each other on the back and tell each other how great we are. A bunch of just kind of like-minded people together, not challenging each other. But the church is this. The church is a hospital for sinners. It's where we come and we hear the truth of the word of God, where we're reinvigorated once again by his living water that's in us, where we're reminded about the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we're reinvigorated for mission to go back out and to share this hope with the lost whom Jesus is seeking out. How can we, the, the beauty here too is we see the humanity of Jesus. His humanity is evident here. Hey, Jesus got tired and weary. Can anybody relate to that? And he came to the way. He's thirsty. In his own human vulnerability and in, in the weakness of the human body, God uses that for him to share this good news with this woman who's come to the well. Even in his his frailness and his weariness and his being tired and his exhaustion, he's pouring himself out. He has the opportunity to share with his life-giving water source. Point number two, we see in this passage a life-giving relationship. We're going to see that this woman has had a number of relationships in her life where she's seeking after something, but it's just not sticking. She's not being fulfilled. We find that in Christ. Jesus is a life-giving relationship, and she's going to experience fully what Jesus is all about because he tells her everything she's ever done. She experiences who Jesus is when he reveals her her sin to her. We need Jesus to reveal our sin to us for us to see the deficit that we have to him. 16 to 19, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The woman will now, now will have a, a further kind of identifying moment and will begin to experience what Jesus has to offer. Because he reveals that she is seeking something only he can fill. A hole only she can fill. He can fill. We're not sure of the circumstances of her different marriages, but the reality is this woman has put herself in a position that she cannot get out of on her own. She's hopeless. She's so isolated, she's going to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, because she just doesn't want to deal with it. Perhaps her situation was just out of desperation, Maybe she needed these men to survive because on on her own, she would have just been living in the streets or or perhaps it is because of promiscuity, because of sexual sin, seeking one man after another to fill the relational void that 
can only be filled by the one thing that keeps, she keeps seeking after. She's looking for this. She's looking for the Messiah. She's looking for something to fill her up. And she keeps finding dead end after dead end after dead end. But here he is. God in the flesh. We witness here even the, I was thinking the, just you, you see her, Married, 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 married. What did John the Baptist use as an illustration last week of his joy? He used a wedding. He talked about the bridegroom coming for his bride. We kind of see that playing out now. The, The groom is coming for his bride. This lady who's messed up her whole life And the Son of God, God in the flesh, comes to her and says, I have a gift for you, the living water. I'm the husband you've been looking for. I'm the groom that you need. You've been looking for something to fill that God-shaped hole that you've had in your heart in relationship after broken relationship, but they all pale in comparison to a relationship with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of you in here this morning, you're looking to fill that hole and you've been seeking it out in things. Maybe it's not sexual sin. Maybe it's other things that you, maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's gossip and hatred towards other people. Maybe It's just seeking after thrill, after thrill, after thrill, and nothing fills that hole. It's always empty. Once the adrenaline rushes away and it's gone, once again, you're empty. You need a relationship with Jesus. The beauty of it here, too, is like Jesus doesn't shy away from the truth, right? He confronts her in her sin. Well, let's not lose sight of this endeavor in our own evangelistic practice. In the church, especially in America, we want to cover up this word sin, and we don't want to talk about it. We want to tuck it away, but we have to talk about sin. If people are to truly understand their need for Jesus, we have to talk about the spiritual deficit that we have apart from Him. He confronts her in her sin. Why? Why do we have to talk about sin? Because sin speaks to the deeper issue of our relationship with God. Family, Christians, we can't leave people ignorant of of their sin. We can't not talk about this issue. The gospel means nothing if we don't talk about sin. It's just some therapeutic message that's going to make you feel better. And no one needs that. They need the truth of Jesus. And they need to know what Jesus delivers us from. We must expose it, but I say this, we do so in love. We do so in love and gentleness and kindness and patience because that's what Jesus has done for us. He's been so loving and kind to us. Sin must be exposed in our own lives. We can't keep it hidden and tucked away. 
it must be brought to light. <laughs> if I'm honest, this is, it's a terrifying and humiliating exercise, right? That we would confess our sins, but we're called to do that. We're called to confess our sins one to another, to expose what's hidden in the dark. And, and the reality is, why do we confess our sins one to another? Because God sees all of them anyways. They're not hidden. That thing that you keep doing in the dark is not hidden away. God sees it all. And because now, see the result of the, the exposure of her sin. Because she's been exposed, she's beginning to experience Jesus. Now she's starting to say, this, this guy's got something. Are you a prophet? What's going on? How did you know that? The inner core of who she is is being revealed. And the only thing that's certain here, it doesn't, we have no evidence that Jesus knew of this woman before he came. This has to be supernatural. This is a supernatural knowledge that he has. And so what's cool in this passage, now theologically, we see this collision in this passage alone. Jesus in his humanness is what? He's weary and tired and he's going to the well for water and he's sitting and resting. But also in his divinity, we see that Jesus knows what? Everything. He has all the attributes of God. He's what we would say he's omniscient. Okay, he's all knowing. He knows what this woman has done. Jesus, fully God, fully man, talking with this lady. And again, let this be a, a lesson to us. Jesus knows everything you've ever done. And that can be a terrifying statement, but how much more does his grace and mercy abound when we know that? Like Jesus knows all those thoughts that have gone through my head, those things that I've done, and he still is seeking out and loving and saving, and he keeps you. He's like an x-ray machine, right? Nothing gets past it. Nothing gets past his screening and perception. He knows it all. And if we know that truth, it makes his grace all the more beautiful. Stop running and hiding from Jesus. This, this point should also cause us to think back to Nicodemus. We compare stories. At the beginning of this passage, it gave us a time reference, a sixth hour. We know that that's noon. So broad daylight, okay? When, here's a little quiz. When did Nicodemus come to Jesus? In the night. Under the cover of darkness. It's no accident these details are included. Remember in the Gospel of John, darkness and light reveal much about the spiritual perception of the person. This lady's whole life has been brought to bear in the light. It's exposed. It's out there. Her sin revealed. She's nothing to hide, especially because Jesus, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, reveals it before her. And in this, she experiences what Jesus has to offer. She experiences, I believe, we're going to culminate this, we're going to finish this passage off next week, the end of chapter 4. She experiences freedom and true worship. Now she begins to question Jesus on worship. It brings us to our last point, life-giving worship. <clears throat> life-giving worship. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> this is interesting. He, he just reveals her sin. 
Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You ever talk to, like, try to talk to people about Jesus and they change the conversation on you? Maybe that's what we're seeing. Like, oh, you just called me out on my, on, on my sin. Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about where we worship. Like, red alert, right? Divert the conversation. I don't want to go there. Remember here also the, the context, the Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim, the Jews on, on the mountain of Jerusalem. So again, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, okay, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither uh, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, now he's referring to to his people, the Jews, we worship what we know. He says this, for salvation is from the Jews, and that's true. He's pausing there. Jesus is this. Jesus is the Israel of God. He came through the lineage of the patriarchs, through God's chosen people. The line of redemption comes from the Jews. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 11. He goes on, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, if you can underline this, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It would be better. The original language there is I who speak to you, I am. Okay. Who is I am? It's God's name. I am who I am. Powerful. True, true worship is revealed. Jesus is showing us through John's gospel who he truly is. This is the significance a few weeks back when, when Brian preached on the clearing of the temple. Because Jesus is going gonna, gonna to render it, in a sense, useless. Because he is, Jesus is, hear this truth, Jesus is the true temple of God. What is the temple? The temple is, is the place where God dwelt with his people, where he met them, where his presence was. And this woman now has true God in her midst. She has Jesus in her presence. And she's not going to him. He's come to her. Jesus came to her, seeking her, revealing to her all that she's done wrong and offering her. He didn't leave her there in her hopelessness. Jesus doesn't leave you in the hopelessness of your sin, but he offers you living water. He's offering the living water of the Spirit to her. This passage is absolutely remarkable. Remember all the, like the social taboo that Jesus is working against. A woman being approached by a man in broad daylight in this patriarchal society. A Samaritan woman at that, and a sexual sinner. Right? And in our society, if we looked at modern society, we have kind of a term like we get from baseball, three strikes, you're out, right? You make three mistakes, you're out. You have three strikes here, and yet the Son of God's coming to her. 
That's because in, in God's economy, in God's kingdom, this is exactly the type of person that Jesus is seeking out because his glory is magnified even more in reconciling this woman to himself. Mount Gerizim, Mount Jerusalem, they no longer matter because God is with us. God is with us. And true worshipers will no longer worry about location because, hear this truth, the location now has been given to us. We are the temple of God. That's what we're called in Scripture. Wherever God met his people is the temple. God's, we know this truth through faith in Christ. We're filled with God's Holy Spirit, so we are now the temple of God. The literal location of the temple is now us. God's Holy Spirit, the inexhaustible well of living water, is indeed within you. If you're a Christian in the room, you have God's inexhaustible well within you. Filling you. Giving you life. Sustaining you. Reinvigorating you. It's like that living stream that constantly fills up the well and fills up the well. It never stagnates. Now, because of this, all of life is worship. All of life is truth. As we've stated before in John's gospel, Jesus is a revealer. He reveals things. He makes them known. And here he's revealing the truth. He reveals this truth to us. This is a truth that we can take away now. In this passage, as we look at this woman and her interaction with Jesus, is that your past doesn't matter. What you've done in the past, it doesn't matter. Your location doesn't matter. Jesus comes to you right where you are. And he covers the sin and shame that you've had in your past. His word says past, present, and future. Sin's forgiven. Your location doesn't matter because he comes right to you right where you are. Your past doesn't matter. Marginalized or comfortable we're all called to the well of life. That is Jesus. Your location doesn't matter. Worship of God is no longer confined to one place. We worship God in all of our life. Every step we take is worship of Jesus. This church building, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a sacred space. That's why we can, we can have a worship gathering in here on Sunday and then we can set up tables on a Wednesday night and eat a mess of good food back there. And then on Sunday nights, they clear out the chairs and a bunch of sweaty dudes come in here and play basketball. This place isn't sacred. You know what's sacred about this place? It's all of you. We're filled with God's Holy Spirit gathering together when the people of God come together and worship Him. That's what's sacred. People. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so I want to offer you this morning, family, would you come to the well and receive the living water of Jesus? Amen?